clock is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock so ring that buzzer it sounds like a lion roar Roar! and open the door to join us for the 64th meeting of the animal fan club i'm a ticklish little blue penguin meredith and i'm 64 bits of fierce baron bird action packaged into a hit video game mike and we meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the dalmatian station to talk about our favorite animals what we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow. So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. Welcome, Cleveland! Yeah. <laughs> we love you, Cleveland. <laughs> um, I don't know, if, as you were just finishing the last part of that intro, I was just getting full, like... You were pumping up the arena vibes, like mm-hmm. the featheriest, fin-filled. I for, just forgot it. <laughs> I've done it so many times yeah. that it has to be like in order, you know? It's furriest, fin-filled, and feathered. There it is. So I had the devil horns up, and yeah. then it was just like the concert yeah. has begun. Here we are. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for coming to our show. Yes, to our arena. The arena animalia. Meredith, I just want to <laughs> jump right into this. This isn't really animal news, but please. Um, we talk so much about Pen15. One of the writers, Maya Erskine, daughter of famed jazz drummer Peter Erskine, yes. who now has gotten a COVID shot. So that's just a little update that I felt <laughs> is relevant to our universe, even though it's completely unrelated to animals. So I just wanted to update you. Peter Erskine has gotten a COVID shot. Thank goodness. Good on you, Peter. We're rooting for you. We're rooting for everybody to get their shots ASAP. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I'm i in full agreement, Meredith. Yeah. So what's up uh, in your animal life these days, other than Peter Erskine vaccination news? <laughs> I mean, thinking of Banjo-Kazooie, the video game referenced in my name. Yes. I'm starting to think that my perspective on furries is changing and i guess i'm trying to like see beyond the sexualization and see like it's just kind of a silly idea like who doesn't want to dress up like a fox and go be a doofus around the convention center of some hyatt somewhere you know what i mean like yeah like is there anything inherently bad about that and is the sort of widespread public perception of furries more based on one element of it, which is a sexual element of it, but it's actually more than that? Or is it like always, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm speaking out of turn here. Maybe I don't know enough about this, but I've just been thinking about that. I guess my, just to take you through my thought process, because like it is kind of a, maligned is a really strong word, but it is like a little off the beaten path of my personal preferences. I'll say that. Sure. Yeah, fair. And I think a lot of that comes from assumptions I'm making based on other things that wear a similar suit, similar garb, like people in really hot amusement parks on really hot days. So it's more the association with what they're wearing and the material and the kinds of smells that often happen in that material that like 
puts me off more than anything, I think. And then you add in, like, for those of us who have had to spend any time in Midtown Manhattan, like the, the Times Square Elmos and those things are just always look really upsetting. So it's more of, like, other associations, those costumes, I guess. Fair. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Assumptions. Huh. <laughs> okay. Well, I accept that. Uh, I guess that, you know, moving forward... I also think maybe a question that we could start introducing to the beginning of the episode is the question, what was your animal energy of the week? Like, did you have any particularly strong animal energy feelings this week? Maybe is is a better framing of the question. Sure. I'm into that. Whereas this week, like I was thinking a lot about the subnivian zone. Mm -hmm. Because I was creating a burrow in between the floor of my couch. And then mm -hmm. the snow in this case was kind of like blankets and pillows and things. So you were under the blankets and the pillows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was kind of like in a sub, like living like a subnivian zone sort of experience. Sure. Sure. I hear you. You know, and looking outside and seeing the right. snow, you know. Definitely. A cat. I'm a sleepy kitty cat. As kitty usual. Cat. All right. That's the default. Groovy. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, without further ado. Yeah, it's an even episode. I go first. Are you Yay! ready to kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer? I sure am. Ready? Okay. Taxona you. Taxona we. Taxona who? Taxona me. Kingdom. And Amelia. That means all the malls. Philo. Nadaria. The jelly journey continues. Class. Anthozoa, anemones, stony and soft corals. Order. Actinaria, anemones only. Family. Actiniidae, the largest anemone fam. Genus. Antactmaea, it's a genus. Species. Quadricolor, the bubble tip anemone. It's a friend of the Nemos. Hey. Friend of the Nemos? Yeah. Oh, the ones that hang one out with the, the clownfish. The hangs out with the clownfish. Yes, exactly. The symbiotic exactly. relationship. Yes, we're talking symbiosis. We're talking mutually beneficial circumstances for these clownfish and these anemone. Although we are not focusing on that relationship, we're focusing on oh. the phylum Nadaria. We're really continuing our jelly journey. We're trying to understand them more. Uh -huh. So you'll remember the Kingdom Animalia, duh, Phylum Nadaria. These are gelatinous things. My previous creatures, the Portuguese Man of War and the Immortal Jellyfish, were also um, Nadarians. Okay. So we've got Mesoglia, which is a non-living jelly-like substance, and that it's sandwiched between two layers of epithelium which are mostly one cell thick. Epithelium is a type of cell. It is a skin cell, essentially. In Nadaria, there's swimming medusae, like jellyfish, or there's sessile polyps. Sometimes they exist at both stages. Sometimes they're only polyps. Um, I don't believe there are any that are only medusae, but I don't actually know that for sure. So... Yeah, they're complicated. They have a single orifice. It's used for digestion and respiration. Oh, right. So they shit where they eat, and they also breathe there, too. <laughs> and then the defining characteristic of this phylum is that they have nidocytes, which are stinging cells. Okay? Okay. So the stinging cells are mainly used for capturing prey. Okay. 
Now we're into class, Anthrozoa. This includes sea anemones, stony corals, and soft corals. The base unit of the adults of this class are all polyps, okay? So their final form is a polyp as opposed to like a medusae, right? They're cylindrical columns topped with a disc that has a central mouth, which is surrounded by tentacles, okay? Right. Yep. So they're mostly solitary. Remember, the Portuguese man of war was not. It was colonial to the point that several organisms made up what we think of as one. Weird. (laughs) I know. It's crazy. The majority of corals are colonial, okay? And they're formed by the budding of new polyps from an original founding individual. So that continues what we think. The individual lands and then it just buds and then new polyps form as it buds. So it's kind of this sort of plant-like animal reproduction method. Okay, order. Actinaria, the sea anemones. They're predatory. They're named after the terrestrial flowering plant, the anemone, which is a type of buttercup, which (laughs) kind of confused me a little bit. Because I don't know that anemones look a lot like buttercups. I was thinking maybe more like a fern or something, you know? Yeah. There's a flower I'm thinking, like a zinnia. I don't know. There's something I'm thinking of that seems more like a sea anemone than a freaking buttercup. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, I don't know the names of plants. This isn't a plant podcast. So sea anemones don't have a medusa stage, right? So they are only polyps. They never have a medusa stage. Okay. So they're never in like jelly form. They're always in polyp form. And generally they'll attach to a hard surface by the base. But some species live in soft sediment and a few float near the water surface. Okay. So we're still talking all anemones now. So we're going to talk about anemonatomy, <laughs> which is anemone anatomy. Anemonatomy. Gray's anemonatomy. <laughs> so, okay. On the bottom, they have an af- adhesive foot, which is called a basal or a petal disc then they have a cylindrical column-shaped body and on the top is the oral disc so the oral disc as we said before it has the central mouth which is usually slit shaped surrounded by one or more whorls of tentacles oh i love a whorl mm-hmm. and then each tentacle has their signature cnidocytes which are the toxins so the way that this works on the anemones is that there's an external sensory hair and any organism that touches that hair will trigger a mechanical, like mechanically trigger a cell explosion. And the cell explosion launches a harpoon-like structure that attaches to the organism that triggered it, which then injects a dose of venom into the flesh. It is like a Rue Goldberg machine of stinging. Exactly. That's so silly. So if you just nestle up against it, that's that's why if you encounter one that's dead, you still shouldn't pick it up because it's a mechanical reaction that will send this harpoon-like structure into your skin. Oh, thank you. No, thank you is right. It's like getting tased by nature. Yeah. I guess lightning would be like that. That's probably more accurate. Lightning's pretty harpoon-like. It is. It's a harpoon from God. Since they don't have a Medusa stage, they just kind of release their eggs and sperm into the water and they like fertilize and then the planula larvae fully develop and settle onto the seabed floor. Mm-hmm. They attach to the substrate and metamorphosize into polyps. So some anthrozoans can reproduce asexually through budding or breaking into pieces. 
Uh, let's talk about digestion. Anemones can be described as having an incomplete gut. The mouth opens into a flattened pharynx, which is made from an infolding of the body wall, so it's lined with epidermis. And that goes down for about a third of the body before it opens into the gastrovascular cavity, which is the stomach, single opening, and both a mouth and an anus. And then around, like, the rim is a sphincter muscle. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's two nerve nets. It's a primitive nervous system. There's two nerve nets. One's in the epidermis, one's in the gastrodermis, and they unite in the pharynx. And it just does, like, coordinate processes to maintain homeostasis, responds to stimuli. It's not centralized. It doesn't seem like these jellies have, like, a complex math system, you know? <laughs> So now we're at family, Actinidae. It's the largest ah. anemone family. Most common temperate shore species belong here. Most don't participate in symbiosis with fishies, but there are exceptions. Mm -hmm. The systematics of Actinidae is often quite difficult. It's troublesome because most species are readily distinguishable while alive, but once they're like dead and fixated, as says, like mounted essentially they lose some of their color and some of their features. So categorization ah, becomes difficult. I see. And then uh, genus and Takmaia and species. It's a genus. All right. <laughs> species quadricolor. So this is the bubble tip anemone. So, I mean, it looks like what it sounds. We know what these anemones look like, right? The whorls of tentacles that are coming off of them. And, yeah, I am going to look at Yeah, it, the bubble fish anemone is real cute. I'm gonna here. I'll drop a link in the chat. Oh yeah, these guys. Oh yeah, and so you can see they're. Yeah. I mean, this species is widespread throughout the tropical waters of the Indo-Pacific area, like the Red Sea, mm -hmm. and they have these cute little relationships with these fish because, like, yes, I don't know it. I don't totally get it. <laughs> well, I know this much. I know like one half of it is that the clownfish, the one you always see in a textbook next to like a description of what it means to be symbiotic. I know the clownfish can't for some reason experience the stings. Yeah. So they're immune to it. But I and so that's the benefit. And so it's able to like hang out there and as protection. Because everything else feels those stings. Everything else gets those stings, yeah. But as far as what the anemone gets out of it, which they do for it to be symbiotic, but I'm not sure what. It might be that the um, clownfish like attracts or distracts or repels somehow, like aposmatically. Mm, interesting. <laughs> yeah. But they're like the classic couple of symbiotic idealists. Yeah. Well, so Meredith, these bubble tip anemones are very popular amongst aquarium people. It's not an easy thing to keep, but there's a lot of content of like aquarium tips for your anemones. I am sure. And it requires that your tank is at least six months old because it kind of has to hit like a symbiosis threshold or something. Oh, wow. Before it can receive the anemone, before it's stable enough to receive the anemone. <laughs> and uh, they like a bigger tank. There's rosé, or rose-colored. There's green-tipped. And then if you're buying an anemone and it's, like, translucent or white, that's called bleaching. And that's bad because it means it's not getting enough light. So if you see a, an anemone that's bleaching, 
share a little bit of your sunlight. Isn't that a song from like the late 90s? I mean, if it's not, it should be. Share a little bit of your sunlight. Yeah, I mean, look, it, this is what I have to tell you. I think that this is pretty interesting. I'm starting to grasp these concepts better by just doing more of them. You know, I, I didn't really get good information about lifespan um, or... I can imagine that's difficult. <laughs> yeah, I think it's hard to know how old one is. Or things like this. But there were aquarium videos where people had specimens that were 15 years old, you know, and they were like, yeah, I've kept this alive for 15 years. I've seen everything it does. It splits. It does all this other stuff. It's really crazy, you know. I don't want an aquarium but i wouldn't mind having like a fun like anemone well you need to have an aquarium for six months before you can have an anemone aquarium that's true it's a it's a commitment but i do love that we've covered such an iconic creature yeah yeah and this like i said this is a very popular species for aquariums bubble tip anemones btas btas (laughs) Yeah, so if, you know, if you're looking for something to work towards, I think that's a good start. All right, all right. Well, with that, break time? Break time. If you thought they couldn't do it again, you're wrong. If you think genius can't strike twice, you're wrong again. From the creators of your favorite smash hit podcast, including Woof Woof, the podcast, my favorite carrion, and this American Pond comes Spermcast, the podcast. Tune in each week as a diverse panel of aquatic invertebrates get together to share laugh, and love on all things sperm. Past episode topics include the best positions for sperm casting and receiving, the biannual gamete games, barnacle badasses, and how to stay sessile and sexy. Episodes drop each Wednesday at high tide. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of Spermcast, the podcast. Just navigate on over to Brand Clubby's Clubcast Media, where you'll find episode guides, our undersea merch cove, as well as links to our whole podcast kingdom. it is it seems like it is meredith i guess we haven't really named it yet what should we call it i don't know um musical malls yeah musical malls perfect musical malls so this is a new segment where we discuss some things that we know about animals relationships to musical instruments uh yeah and how i guess we're exploring instruments that are made of animals yeah yeah that's kind of seems to be like uses of animal pieces, parts in musical instruments. Sure. Yes, exactly. It's quite literally the intersection of our interests. So I wouldn't want to exclude also animal musicians. They can come along at some point too. Sure. Just, not today. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I'm thinking of that dingo that lives in Australia, I think, who plays the piano and sings. But again, Another edition of Musical Mouse. Today, we're talking about animals and instruments or animal parts that 
constitute some instruments. And so I got the idea for this. As I mentioned earlier, we're talking about Peter Erskine, which made me think about Chick Corea, Prague legend, who just died last week. Uh-huh. And it was funny because just that morning, I had been listening to Return to Forever album, the self-titled album, and had this idea. I was like, I heard them come in with some goat toes and kind of that like clickety-clackety sound of some goat toes. Uh-huh. And uh, I was like, oh, this should be a new segment where we explore how animals have helped us make music and kind of created how we conceive of music as well. Like the relationship between how like animal products sound has really like developed side by side with our notions of music. Uh, it's definitely true. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that there's this connection between instruments and animals as like part of humankind as a species, part of our sort of conquering of the world, if you will, has, has been mm-hmm. uh, partially based on killing and, using different parts of creatures, whether that's for meat or products or whatever. And so drums are really no different. And there's a lot of drums that use natural skin hides. In fact, before there were plastic drum heads, which is a relatively recent invention, all drums throughout history had always been made with skin heads because plastic didn't exist yet. Right. So, you know, when you start talking traditional drums, you start talking about natural products. And I think about the time that I traveled to Ghana when I was in college with a bunch of other percussionists to spend three weeks just more experiencing culture shock than necessarily learning. That's not really long enough to learn anything because it's so overwhelming that like you're different, like you're just like, oh, everything I know about the world is backwards. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that happened when we very first got there is we all like got to call our parents from the dude's cell phone. Yeah. Oh. And I called my mom and she was like, what's that in the background? I was like, oh, there's like some goats right here. <laughs> like, I got to go. <laughs> you know, she was just like, oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> we were at this one center and there were these drums that were like a calabash gourd with a lizard skin stretched over the top of it. And they were like, well, how many do you guys want? There were five that were ordered. And at the end of the day, we saw a dude coming back into like the area with like five lizards just thrown over his shoulder. And there was a realization, a very real realization in my head at that time that was just like, oh, like we killed those lizards. Yeah. We wanted drums so those lizards had to die. Right. And it made me think of the drum in a different way. Definitely. Yeah. (laughs) You see like where it's coming from and the consequences of where it's coming coming yeah. from. They were like big, like four foot lizards. Oof. Yeah. Kind of like our iguana buds in yeah. size. Wow. Oh, man. Sweet. So did you take home like a drum made of that or you just took home the skin? I took home the drum that was made with the skin from that gotcha. lizard. Like they killed the lizard and like two days later we had oh, drums. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. I was thinking of... Uh, other very common instruments that use animal product and that being like the bows of all string instruments. I shouldn't say all string instruments, sure, but sure. you know, yeah. horse hair, horse hair. It's made from horse hair. It's made from horse hair. So yeah. I was looking it up online and I came across, it was like this forum and it was like 
Can you be vegan and play the violin? <laughs> oh, girl. I was like, oh. I'm here for that discourse. Yeah, I was like, I have never even thought about that. Like, I that has never crossed my mind. Like, I knew bows were horsehair. Um, and from what I read or what I could surmise, this could be wrong now, um, but that most horsehair products come from slaughtered horses. So, I mean, I guess a horse had to die to get that horse hair, but I think it's just use as much of the animal as you can kind of situation. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess we're encroaching on bioethics at this point. <laughs> yeah. And animal ethics, really. But they do make synthetic ones. Oh, they do? Is that they do. So I actually, I was curious about the extent to which synthetic bows are used. And I texted my friend who is a bass player and she said she's like hardly ever seen it. Oh, yeah. Like a fraction of a percent has she ever seen anybody use bow with synthetic, synthetic, synthetic fibers in it. So I'm not the least bit surprised to hear that. Right. So just interesting things to think about. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, thanks, Meredith. That was really great. I like this new segment. Our inaugural segment, our pilot segment of musical malls. Goats, cows, lizards, cape vultures, macaws. <laughs> These are just a few of our fave musical malls. <laughs> Texana, you. Texana, we. Texana, who? Texana, me. Kingdom. And Amelia, if you like animals, well, I have a podcast for you. Cordata. And now, with tails. Class. Reptilia. The herpetologist's ears just perked up. Order. Squamata. Horny scales and Family. shields. Iguanidae. Show us your dewlaps. Genus. Iguana. Lizards who like plants. Species. Iguana. Iguana. You guessed it. It's the field mouse. JK, it's the green iguana, a.k.a. the American iguana. Stay away from me, American iguana. <laughs> yes. Web seven All three. of these words apply and more to the green iguana, the subject of my report today. I mean, this again is just an animal I have never really spent much time thinking about. So I learned some stuff here. It really did. I guess I didn't realize that there was an iguana in America. There are lots of iguanas in America, in fact. But we'll talk about it. Okay. We'll talk about it. But part of it is similar to your anemone because there are such popular pets. So there's a, a lot in the country being kept as pets. So, But anyway, we'll talk about all of that. So tax, tax. Class reptilia. So we haven't done one of these in a while, but, you know, we love them. They're like the dinosaur leftovers, um, cold-blooded, half of herps, as I call it. So herpetology is the study of reptiles and amphibians. So we're doing half of herps. HSV 0.5. Exactly. Order squamata. So remember, you know, I love to go through this as if this makes sense to anybody or that any of us remember any of it because I sure don't. But remember, the order of squamata is the second largest order of vertebrates behind the persiform fish. So you remember talking about this before. Yes, persiforms and squamates. Yes. 
the Persiforms are the squamates of the fishes, and the squamates are the Persiforms <laughs> of the reptiles. Sure. Yeah, I got yes. it. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Okay. I will not remember it after we hit stop today. Oh, yeah. In this order, the order of squamata, these reptiles are also distinguished by the ability to open their mouths really wide. <laughs> so you can think of, like, snakes. Yes. Of course. Okay. So the family of Iguanidae. So the Iguanidae. They're a family of lizards um, composed of iguanas and related species. And so I look through all of the different genus, geni, genuses, genera. Genies. I dream of them. All the different. <laughs> I look through all the different genies. Sorry. Sorry. I just want to break into song when I'm like, oh, I just have to get through this. <laughs> I just want to play and I'm like, Ugh, I still have work to do. Okay. Family. Iguan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Iguanidae, family of lizards composed of iguanas and related species. All of these related species, all of these, all these genies are iguanas, except for one, which is the Chuckwalla. <laughs> no. And you would think Chuckwallas would live in Australia or New Zealand, and they don't. They they live in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of a letdown there, but it's okay. We're plugging on. We're we're getting through this. Then we get to the genus of iguana. So these are herbivorous lizards. I guess this is one of the thing, one of the things that really surprised me is that they are like exclusively herbivorous because their bodies like really can't process protein. Oh. Uh, in the way that like, you know, bug insect eating reptiles or, you know. Yeah. We think of. Because those those have a lot of protein. Right. But they need plants. And I think this is where it gets really tough for um, home iguana keepers, iguana moms and dads that just don't really know how to like give them the right things to eat. Also, there's like temperature and getting them the right kind of sunlight because they need to be able to like produce enough vitamin D. It's all very tough. They're they're actually they're such popular pets, but they're very difficult pets. Right. Yeah. So keep that in mind before you go shopping for the next. Okay. Because what what kind of plants do they eat? I mean, you can't just give them like a kale salad, can you? Well, kale is actually one of the things that's really good for them. Oh. Like the problem is people just give them lettuce, like iceberg lettuce. Oh. And even like I don't think romaine would be nutritionally dense enough because what they're eating, just to give you a sense, like I've eaten all of these things and I can tell you these are like some of the more like gristy of the greens. So turnip greens, mustard greens, dandelion greens, flowers, fruit. Oh, yeah. And then I read somewhere else that they like kale as well. So those really like iron rich. Yeah. Spicy greens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. No iceberg lettuce for these guys at all. And no crickets and no insects or anything like that. They want. But occasionally an apricot. Yes. Maybe a fruit if they're being good. So, yeah. And as far as. Where these these species live, or where the genus is, more generally, Mexico, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. And then specifically for the iguana iguana, aka the American iguana, 
Also, a.k.a. the bamboo chicken. No. Or the chicken of the trees. <laughs> the chicken of the trees. We have the chicken of the sea and the chicken of the tree. Because, like, they, in, especially in places like Puerto Rico, for instance, where they're considered an invasive species. Mm-hmm. Like, people have started eating them just as a way of, like, eradicating them or keeping their numbers in check. It worked for the passenger pigeon. It can work for the iguana, too. That's what I thought. I was like, no. (laughs) Haven't we learned our lesson? But apparently iguanas taste like chicken. They kind of live under in all terrain. So they dig burrows as well as just kind of hang out on the ground. Um, But they also love to climb up into trees Mm. as well. And so I did just come across this story about how um, I think it was like in southern Florida where really extremely cold temperatures, uncharacteristically cold temperatures occurred, that there was just this like (laughs) all the iguanas that were up in the trees like lost control and started falling out of the trees. (laughs) It was raining iguanas? Yeah, it was like the day the iguanas fell like rain. Yeah, people were like, they're just scattered all over the bike path. And and a lot of them would like come to as they warmed up. But they're just like not ready for those cold temperatures. Wow. Oh, poor buddies falling out of the tree. Yeah, poor, poor little, poor little. Uh, you feel you feel lucky for the ones that had like the right positioning so that they weren't going to fall. The ones that like woke up on the tree, you know? Right. Exactly. They look down at their buds and they're like, they're like, whoa, everybody else fell. What are you guys doing? You got a rapture. I was left to be behind. <laughs> I told you all not to cling sideways to the branch. So you're going to fall asleep one day and fall <laughs> off. <laughs> so southern Brazil and Paraguay and as far north as southern Mexico. Mm. But it has been, like I mentioned, introduced invasively to Puerto Rico. And it's become a bit of a nuisance there. And like I mentioned, they are commonly kept as pets because they are calm. And then they can sometimes have like really fun colors like bright green or reds. Yeah. They are called the green iguana after all. But like I mentioned, they can just be like really difficult (laughs) to take care of because of their dietary and kind of temperature needs. Oh, I mentioned that they kind of hang out everywhere on the ground and burrows and in trees. But I also didn't mention that they do. They're like agile swimmers. But I kind of like their style and that they like. Especially if they're being threatened near water where they actually like to hang out. Like if, say, a predator's coming at them, they'll just dive into the water. And then once they're in there, they don't even use their stupid little arms and legs. They just let their long, whippy tail do all the work. (sighs) So they just kind of hang limp in the water and, like, let their tail get them where they're going. Swish, swish. Swish, swish. How marvelous. Look out. So speaking of the tails and their lengths... So the average adult male will uh, grow to, let's see, like about four to five and a half feet from head to tail. So, I mean, five and a half feet, that's like kind of my height. I'm a little taller than that. Uh Uh-huh. But I knew he would just be like kind of tickling your beard with his tail. Yeah, just barely. If he were like doing a handstand. Right, right. (laughs) Which, why would he be doing anything else? (laughs) Those iguanas love a tumble. Let's see here. Uh, Okay, yeah. So we know about their long tails, but they've also got this kind of row of spines down their back. Some subspecies even have a little horn, which kind of made me think about that uh, Triceratops 
uh, chameleon that we covered a few weeks back. But they also have the thing that I'm obsessed with and I've always wanted to do iguanas because of this, which is the dewlap. <laughs> uh-huh. Like any opportunity to talk about a dewlap. Yeah, please. Essentially, it's like if you put your hand or like your your fingertips like right up under your chin. So your hand is essentially like perpendicular to your chin. Yep. You're kind of doing like a do lap. You're doing the do lap. Okay. <laughs> do do that. So it's do do up. I'm doing it right now. Me too. So essentially, it's this like flap of skin that kind of like connects at the chin and kind of like stretches down onto their chest, and it just looks like I don't know, almost as if like somebody took our neck skin and like stretched it out, like it was like bread dough or pizza dough and it just kind of stayed out and flappy like that sure sure that's the dewlap that's the dewlap it's like flappy pita dough coming out of your neck exactly so and this thing helps them regulate their temperature and they also use it for like courtship and territorial displays so they'll like Mm -hmm. straighten it out essentially Mm -hmm. it's all so silly i couldn't find a whole lot about Kind of like iguana romance, other than like I mentioned with the dewlap, that's a way of communicating desire or interest, I guess. Sure. Or being in the mood or being fertile, all those moods associated with the mood. But I, they did say something too about head bobs, were like one of those forms of communication about feeling romantic. So yeah, that's about all I know about iguana love. Cool. But I also know that they're live over Paris. They are over Paris. So they lay eggs. Mm-hmm. Not a big surprise coming from the reptile. Not one bit. Not one bit. So in terms of kind of protecting itself, it'll stiffen up and puff up its body, hiss, and bob its head at the aggressor. And if the threat persists, the iguana can lash with its tail, bite, and use its claws in defense. I just wanted to talk to you about this like really goofy story about so they are invasive in some cases, but they're sure <laughs> this is kind of like a um an unintentional invasion or just no one was at fault here. So <laughs> after Hurricane Louis and Hurricane Marilyn in nineteen ninety-five, a raft of uprooted trees carrying fifteen or more green iguanas landed on the eastern side of Anguilla an island where the green iguanas have never been recorded. So they essentially were were like out at sea for like 30 hours, like hanging out on this tree raft. They were just on a tree. After a hurricane and they just floated and, you know, (laughs) and ended up, you know, coming ashore and they just kind of, I can just imagine them kind of like looking around, flipping their tails and they all just kind of slowly like amble off the raft and then just, Make new burrows and climb new trees and settle down there. <laughs> that was so funny. I was like, where is that Pixar movie? For real. Yeah. Really, my only other experience with iguanas was that there was this restaurant in Cincinnati called Toots. Great food and fun was what. And they had like a clam, like a clam mascot. So I guess it was like seafood. I really don't know. In Cincinnati? Yeah. It, it, delicious, right? From the placid waters of the Ohio River. Mm, delicious. We went once to check it out. 
and they I remember this that they had like an arcade but they also had this big enclosure and there were like two iguanas in there and they just seemed like so beat up and like kind of creepy and I kept going to like look at them and they just like they just kept biting at each other and fighting it was just very strange and so today when I was typing this up I was like I was like I typed into Google said toots iguanas and so <laughs> It brings up this story about all these toots in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where the beloved iguana Elvis died. So I think it was like a practice amongst toots, a Murfreesboro-based <laughs> restaurant chain that also had a location in Cincinnati and that also held iguanas. Huh. Like, what? And so, oh, yeah. And then there was another story about one of these like Murfreesboro locations having to get rid of its iguana of 10 years because the health inspector was like... What are you thinking? Reptiles are known carriers of salmonella. Like, what are you doing? After a health inspector was like, you've been doing this for 10 years? Yeah. <laughs> How long? Yeah. I wonder if they just like threw a like a cloak over it. Like the shit, we used to do at various coffee shops when the health inspector would come. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my God, girl. I was always like, I was always like, you want me to throw away all the rags? I'm like, what? I'm like, what world does the health inspector come in and see all of the baristas just immediately throw away every towel that they have? Like, right. What world is that? Like, they know that's not real. Like, And the cutting board. Yeah. Always the cutting board. <laughs> oh, my God. The cutting board would make or break your health score. Ugh. What a world. What a world. Well, anyway, that's the iguana world. Sorry, that was very um, scattered. <laughs> no, that was great. I would expect nothing else from an iguana presentation, right. frankly. Scattered. I, I'm happy to know that they're herbivorous. I just had always lumped them in with other sort of insect-eating reptiles. I know. But I kind of like their little placid life of just, you know. Same. Chilling. Staying warm and eating clean. Yeah. A lot of fiber. Yeah, and I also love that they're like into like really delicious, like hearty greens. Mm -hmm. You know, they're mm -hmm. not they're not fucking around. No. They're like, give me that iron, give me that potassium, fiber me up. I'm an iguana. Yum yum. Break time. Break time. Oh, oh, hey, Frankie, what's uh, going on over there? Oh, hi, Jerry. I'm just rocking out. I love the drums, but since they are all made for humans, I have to use my voice like a beatboxer. I see. Book it a chomp. Book it a chomp. Well, Frankie, it's clear to me that you haven't heard about the new brand clubby product, Des Drums, Drums for Desmonds. I haven't, Jerry. Tell me more. Well, the latest release from the musical appendage of Conglomerate Brand Clubby is meant for you. For me? Yes, you, Frankie. Des drums are scaled down, but acoustically consistent instruments to give you the power of drums, but on a scale suitable for a Desmond. That's literally exactly what's been missing from my life. I'm sure your neighbors feel the same way. How complete is the line? What's the story with the symbols? Well, Brand Clubby is simultaneously launching Rodentifus, a symbol company that caters to the specific symbol needs of the order Rodentia. Amazing! Brand Clubby just makes me want to... 
Well, now you can do that on your Des drums and impress all the other creatures in our rich river environment. Just wait until they hear my black page or my when the levee breaks. I'm so excited. Oh. <laughs> I think it's some oats. Right I think now. we've got some oats, and that's the feed bag. Yeah. So, Adrian from Duluth wants to know how does an octopus wear a t shirt? I mean, this is so many questions wrapped into one, Adrian. This is like, how many armholes are there, or do they prioritize the two human armholes? And, like, What's, what are they going to put out the, the neck? Because it's not like their head is that bulbous thing. Their head is like in their yeah like undercarriage. Kind of. Yeah. I imagine that they would almost wear it like they wouldn't even use the sleeves. Like their head would come out the head hole and everything else would like come out the skirt of it. <laughs> and the sleeves would just kind of dangle uselessly. That's how I imagine. I'm just kind of picturing like the eyes just kind of barely peeking above like the collar. Uh-huh. Sure. Like so it can navigate, sure. but everything else is under the t-shirt. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so it's like, why are you even wearing it? Yeah. You know, I'm reminded whenever I think about octopuses and t-shirts, I'm reminded of this time I took the Greyhound from New York to Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. And there was this like Latin dude who had just exfoliated for the fourth time too many that week. And then he got on the bus with his buddy and like dude was wearing this octopus shirt that was like from the skirt up and like it was the octopus's hole with like the eight legs spun spun around (laughs) and he had an eyebrow piercing and he was just like, I fucking everybody. And I was like, whoa, bro, calm down. You're going to need to calm down. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I think of when I think of octopus t-shirts. Well, that is, this is quite evocative then, this question. It is. Really. So, I mean, Adrian, I'm not sure, but I can, I think we can give a ding, ding, ding to like a great question. Yeah. Ding, <laughs> ding, ding, ding. All right. Kevin from Utah asks, what's an owl's favorite wing sauce at Hooters? <laughs> wow. Kevin, just... you know, I tried to look up uh, wing sauce flavors in Utah Hooters, and I got mixed results about whether or not any were open. So I went with... Menu, uh, I went with a menu from Colorado, figuring it would at least be close, um, you know, with any sort of like high altitude wing sauces, <laughs> like would be able to stabilize. Optimize you know? for high altitude. Yeah. Yes. So, all right, we got plain, mild, medium, hot, three mile island, <laughs> three mile island, probably <laughs> Cajun rub, Caribbean jerk rub, Chesapeake, Chipotle honey, general sow garlic habanero rub, lemon pepper rub, parmesan garlic, spicy garlic, texas barbecue rub, sriracha honey. Oof. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to rule out rubs. I'm going to say that owls don't like rubs. They do not have time for rubs. Ooh, but they like something spicy. I'm kind of feeling this sriracha honey for an owl. Ooh. See, mm, sriracha honey versus chipotle honey. I would if I if it were me, I'd be like, I definitely want to try one of those. But this is for an owl. This isn't for me. Ooh, I think maybe um, I'm just gonna be crazy and say maybe plain. Plain? You think plain? Plain. These owls aren't fucking around. They're just trying to. They're owls on the go. They're not. 
they don't even want like a general so or like a parmesan garlic even just a plain maybe a parmi gar i will say maybe a parmi gar i was looking at that um okay so definitely house divided though yeah house divided i'm saying sriracha honey i'm saying either plain or parmi gar (laughs) ding 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 all right so chris from lexington says my partner and i are looking to dress up like a horse but we both want to be in the back how do we work through this well, Chris, uh, first of all, hey. Um, <laughs> second of all, um, I, you know, it's about taking turns, I think. Um, I think it's about, mm-hmm. I think it's about, you know, uh, reciprocity and kind of like a tit for tat and maybe like Tuesdays are your night and Thursdays are their night, you know? Right. Right. Um, I think, uh, I think it's about that, at least now in this current pandemic situation but you know maybe as you both you know become vaccinated and maybe some of your you know friends that you trust also get vaccinated maybe you know you can uh dress up like a horse with your buddies you know and be in the back you know yeah could kind of branch out a little bit if that's right for you you know i don't know what your um, relationship status is in terms of like you know horse costuming right uh, right polygamy or whatever you know yeah i think you're just gonna have to you know have an open and lively discussion about it and figure out what it is you both want and work out a way to compromise Mm. yeah yeah I think, Chris, it's really great that you found somebody who shares your enthusiasm for dressing up like the back half of the horse, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I I would imagine that, you know, it's the less glamorous end of the horse. Well, that depends who you're asking, Meredith, you know? I know. I know this. But I'm talking from, like, an audience's point of view. Sure. sure. Like, the horse. You're going to look at the horse in the eyes. You're not going to probably look at the, the haunches. But, again, it depends on who you're talking. All right. Well, uh, fish, uh, fish position, communication. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Well, keep the questions coming. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. And, you know, have a great week in animals, I guess. Definitely. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club. <laughs>